This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We've got, we're going to start with uh, a statement from uh, each of them that sort of follows along with what happened with the last uh, panel, in which I'm going to ask you, everybody fell into a role who stayed at Standing Rock for any length of time. And those roles were very individual. And at the end of those months, you probably had some realization, some, some, something came to you. So I'm going to start with the person next to me, with John Bigelow. From your perspective, from your role, what kind of message do you have for the outside world? Um, first, my name is Patesan Okshila. I was granted that name by my grandmother. I'm a, I come from two clans of the Unkbapa Lakota tribe in Standing Rock, the White Buffaloes and the Buffalo Boys. And uh, she said I would carry both of those clan names. Um, I'm from Standing Rock, so I had to go. I was living in Tucson at the time. I went to, and this is not an uncommon story. It happened a lot in camp. Uh, I borrowed a camera. I was going to go to Standing Rock. I was going to shoot a documentary. I had scheduled to be there for two weeks. Um, I have a background in journalism. I understand unbiased reporting and reporting standards. So I went to Standing Rock unbiased, I thought, in my mind. Um, I lost my journalistic objectivity on October 27th. I was at treaty camp. And I watched, once again, an army, a militarized police force, roll over my people as I've watched my entire life, starting in Westerns, television, movies, we were losing once again. And it was on that day that I became a water protector. I think we have biases all the time, and that the first thing in trying to balance the scales in journalism is to recognize our own biases inside. Um, Claudio said it right. I I raised my hand at the wrong time in camp uh, when I asked the question, does Ocheti Shikowin camp have any media? The answer was no. And... uh, I foolishly offered to assist to set that up. Um, My two weeks turned into seven months in camp. I was probably one of the last boots off the ground. I finally left camp in March, uh, or left Cannonball and Standing Rock. The there are many things that I learned in camp. One was. Um, how to layer one's clothes. 
to stay warm. Uh, it, I was I was blessed to be able to go there, to go home, and to see many relatives, and and to make uh, new acquaintances and meet new family members. And I'll take that with me to my grave. Mm-hmm. Um, what I take away, I think that the world should know, is that one. We can establish our own voices now in media. We don't have to depend on mainstream media to carry our songs and to carry our stories. Technology has leveled that playing field for us. So we can stand up and explain what Mini Wachoni means to the world. Um, we, as Native peoples, as Indigenous peoples, need to, as best we can, seize that opportunity to tell our stories. Our prayerful and peaceful approach, I hope, might change someone, something in the paradigm of how we deal with each other, these protests, these movements. Because I think if we had any success, in my opinion, in Standing Rock, it was because Majority, majority of us understood what peaceful and prayerful was, and we fought very hard to maintain that. And I say fought hard because it's not always easy when you're standing off in front of a militarized police force to stay calm and to stay prayerful and to look at someone who's staring you down with icy cold eyes and pray for them and mean it. Um, That's one of the things that maybe have taken out of camp. Oh. So now, Paul, it's your turn. Oh, thank you, Tom. From your your perspective, what's what's your takeaway from this experience? My takeaway from this experience? um, hello, everybody. My name is Paula Antoine. My Lakota name is Wobilawi. And during the camp, I was also gifted with another name, um, Wichonka Owayakawi, which came directly out of the camp and some of the things that had happened there. And um, I'm Sichangu Lakota from Rosewood, South Dakota. I'm the director of our land office, and that's one of the reasons why some of the people in Standing Rock reached out to me. and. We had, a, we had a spirit camp in Rosebud for the KXL, and they wanted to know how we organized and how we did this, how we began our spiritual movement in Rosebud. So I went to Standing Rock at the invitation of the people, and that's another thing that, you know, I heard other panelists say that, you know, it's really important to be a good relative when, when, we step into the circle when we walk up to the circle you know the and we're born the main thing the most precious thing that you can do and be is a good relative and give that of yourself and it reminds me of one of the stories that um, i was told there was a there was a deer 
and one of my relatives was hunting this deer. And he shot this deer, and he wounded it, so he followed it out into the fields. And as he did that, the deer was slowing down, and he came over the hill and saw the deer. And he was going to shoot it, but he didn't because a group of deer, another herd of deer, surrounded this deer that was injured. And they circled this deer. And he, he watched what they were doing, and he realized that they came to save that deer. And that's the same thing that the buffalo do. And so when the call was made by some of the community members in Cannonball to come help, there was only one thing that we could do is go help. And so some of our tribal members spent January and February prior to the camp opening helping them organize and giving them direction on how to get there and how to begin their spiritual movement to reach that place to start the camp. And on our way, it made me realize how important that relationship is between each individual. You know, that movement began with individual connection with our, also with our connection to Mother Earth. And without that, we wouldn't have been able to bring all these people together. And the people that did come had that connection too. They knew what we were talking about. They knew what we were feeling. They knew how the connection that we all had, and it was a binding connection. And it was so powerful that... um, you know, I remember some days, there was one day, and Joy was there, and we were there. We, <clears throat> we shared the first couple days there, and prior to that, I remembered the sun coming up a couple times and sitting at the fire, and some of the campers, there were maybe a few of them there, and they said, what are we going to do? There's no one here but us. And so we would pray, you know, prayed in the fire there. And, and it just, the, that fire that everybody's feeling, that fire that brought everybody there, that spiritual connection is what brought everybody there and together. And everybody feels it now and feels it today. And that's why we're relatives now. And that's why we have such a close connection with everybody that we know who was there. And during that time prior to, prior to the camp and the idea that they were going to do that, we had also intervened at the state level in South Dakota with that, with that permit applications. So we knew a lot of the, the legal the legal avenues that the different tribes and organizations in South Dakota and North Dakota were doing to try to prevent um, Dakota Access Pipeline permits from being approved. So there were a lot of different avenues that we needed to work on, but we needed to get that information out. And so one of the first things that I thought was a good idea was to create a Facebook page. and. That page was called No No Dapple in Treaty Territory, and which eventually became Sacred Stone Camp page. Mm. 
and I'm not sure if any of you know that, but that was one of our first ways to reach out to the general public. And there were um, a few drone pilots up there at the time, and uh, and we started. You know, it wasn't all my idea. You know, there was a lot. There was a large group of media that that thought of different strategies where we could try to get that information out. And um, the collective ideas that we all shared contributed to the fact that we had probably over 100,000 people moving through that camp. And the collective ideas that we all shared, you know, all came from one thing. You know, we were there to help and we were there to be a good relative. But that's my take on that. Myron Dewey, um, you were uh, a, um, uh, a pioneer of uh, the Facebook live stream, if I, if I may say. Uh, what was your, after your experience there, you went through a lot um, from the role that you came in with and maybe adopted and adapted. What's, what's your perspective on, on the experience and what, what message do you bring forth? Uh, no, 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 a whole bunch, you know, I mean, the Waka River Paiute tribe. I acknowledge the, the indigenous people here, the Chumash tribe, and thank you guys for sending your people up. And, um, you know, my, my experience started, I was on a prayer run, and it's a peace and dignity run that came through our homelands. Me and my son were on that run. We ran a thousand miles with them. And as every tribe they went through, and that was pretty strict protocol going through from morning to night, carrying that staff through the Nevada desert at 115 degrees. And that was right before we left to Standing Rock. Um, I heard the call out from the youth while we were on the run, and I thought at first it was another chapter running or another group running. And I watched it, and then I saw it, and I thought, whoa, they're running to D.C. And then I saw why they were running, and then I started thinking back. Uh, 2005, I was in Cannonball working with the youth in digital storytelling and the at-risk youth and seeing the community and what they were going through then. And later on in ceremony over there in Sweat and different times in Pine Ridge and so I already had a connection over there, and I went to an all-Native American university called Haskell Indian Nations University, where we got really schooled on the 1851 treaty, 1858 treaty, and from tribal members in our Indian law class that you know envisioned if this would happen, what we could do, and I took their stories with me, and I went home, and after the run, I was sitting there thinking about why it was important when I kept hearing water is life. And in our lake, all our fish are, are dead. We're called a guide to cut trout eaters, and we no longer have our food source in our lake. And in our lifetime, we've witnessed that. Our big fight, though, there was the pine trees, the tibapi. And we, we deal with uh, less than 200 years of colonization, forced hard Reno, Nevada. If you guys know Reno, Nevada, if you guys know the Comstock load, any of that, that's what we dealt with miners. And just in a one real big hard push is what we had to be defensive and always on defense. 
And I was just sitting there back home thinking about Yucca Mountain. I was thinking about what the Dan sisters had done to protect their homelands, what our Washoe relatives have done, and why I went to school all these years, why I was learning computers, why I was learning all these things that doesn't bring a, a job on the reservation. And as a professor, you know, that was my prof profession. And a historical trauma trainer, I was trying to put it all in perspective and think about this is history repeating itself, is what I started to see. And yellow journalism is a part of the history we've seen in the last several hundred years as media was coming out about massacres and reasons why massacres occurred. And if you started to follow Standing Rock, you could see that yellow journalism was starting to come out of killing buffalo, killing cows. And I was like, this ain't true. None of this is true when you're there witnessing. So we loaded up with what we had and uh, some relatives from Reno, um, Bucky, Bucky Harjo, and the sister, she came up and we stopped and the elders took care of us. They um, gave us their blessing, um, made donations. We loaded my little car up with what we thought were a lot of donations, <laughs> put it all on the roof, and we took off. And, you know, just to help your Indian people when that call out is made, you just want to bring everything. You just want to bring everything you possibly can. I was thinking, what can I bring? I got my sage, my tobacco, I was trying to bring medicines, and which camera should I bring? And then that one's too big. and. And I just, I just took what I had, because I could only bring so much, and I, I left. And we got there and uh, took one of my brother, uh, brothers with us, too, 20, Mashika. And I says, brother, you got to go live your music now. You know, come with us. He, he writes about this, everything that just falls right into place. And he came. And I knew that our story was not going to be told the way I seen it. I knew that things were gonna happen on the other side and I needed to be able to help facilitate that in any way, shape or form. And I think by physically walking to every individual police officer, mercenary that I seen, rancher, and the sheriffs, the high patrol, and to educate them that they were on treaty land. And if they knew that, because in our homelands, they know that, but it's, it's, it does slow them down. But the more of the history they knew, maybe, maybe they would consciously think, hey, this ain't right. This is not okay. If I could share that with them in personal um, dialogue. And the officer you seen was FBI. He tried to intimidate me way the hell out there and come in my vehicle. I just happened to get my camera on. I didn't even know if it was rolling at that time. That was one of the very first times I ran into undercover out there that was lying. And I seen a lot of these officers lie. But this guy tried to act like he was a mercenary. He tried to come in, but he, I knew he wasn't because they don't do that. In Nevada, they don't do that. And so if you guys ever heard about Birds Paiute, what happened with the domestic mercenaries and the Bundys that came down, we've already been prepped in Nevada pretty hard with mercenaries. We already know what they look like. We already know what the government does. We already know what the military is. On our reservation, they're on both sides. So the tactics he was doing, I knew we already were prepped. But I knew that a lot of our people aren't prepped that way. So it's like, okay, just to go in and document him, remind him that he's on live. But they didn't get it at that time. They continued to push their envelope and um, to try to role model the teachings to say, you know, this isn't, this isn't who we are. 
and want to give them excuse to hurt any of our people and to share with them that we weren't protesters, we were protectors, and to start that narrative and to help guide our, um, our people to say, you know what, we're gonna, this is our narrative. Indigenous people have been fighting this fight since pre-contact, since first contact, and if I can keep that ball rolling in that direction, I was hopefully can take away our allies and our relatives can take away the truth of why they were there. And we'd struggled with that so many times with people that wouldn't. You can tell them the truth and they leave Fox News. They can, they can, they just can't tell the truth. And the same guy would try to sneak back in with a different person and go to a different media. And this is what we had to do was completely create this safe place for our people to be able to pray and share their story accurately. And how can you get it wrong when it was that way every day? You know, that's what I've seen, and a lot of our allies that were there took that away with them. And I felt after, you know, I stood there, you know, um, looking over at the Shine River camp, I was standing there and looking at the camps, thinking about, did I do enough? That's what I always felt like I didn't do enough. I didn't do enough, and there's got to be more to do. And it was in uh, being angry, but it was being more intellectually angry and trying to think about history because history was repeating itself. And uh, we're still learning, I'm still learning. I've made mistakes and I try to correct them as a journalist, as a media uh, trainer, as an independent media, as a um, cultural monitor, trying to do the best we can where there was no rules in those areas yet that we're starting to define as Indian people. We're starting to protect our homelands ourselves. And the goal was to say, you know, we're cultural monitors. We're protectors of our own land. And we can indigenize the way we see media, independent media, and Facebook media. And I think that's what we've seen, is that we indigenized it for the world to see who we are as Indian people. Um, one of the things that uh, journalists and filmmakers do is they constantly have to adapt to what the situations are in front of them. And they are varied occasionally. They're dangerous. They're frequently wacky. Um, and sometimes technology coincides with events and makes some kind of possibility. So when I got there as a filmmaker, I realized that Standing Rock was facing two blockades as far as the media goes. There was mainstream media was absent, so they were simply ignoring the story or doing very little about it. And then there was also a physical blockade where we had um, a very remote location, poor cell service, and apparently authorities trying to mess with our cell signal. It was very difficult to get out any kind of, upload any kind of file. That was a big hassle. And so you were, there was a lot of things to deal with. And then, of course, you had to camp as well as keep your, you know, keep your gear going. Along comes live stream. And I realized with this, this tool was really important. But at the same time, live stream on Facebook is owned by Facebook. In the middle of an action, Unicorn Riot is live streaming. And Facebook cuts off their feed. Because Facebook is private. It's not the public airwaves. It's not like the telephone company. The telephone company can't stop you from making a phone call. But... You were able, Myron, to really push the envelope on live streaming by going out on a back road 
facing guys, guys with guns by yourself, miles from anybody else, and it has this authenticity that you just, you know, CBS News is not going to deliver that to you. Uh, I mean, yes, you've indigenized it, but you've also revolutionized it. Uh, and and the, the drone and the, and the live stream really broke open something. That's really altered the media landscape. It's now, I mean, we're live streaming at this moment, but this is, you know, last summer in 2016, that was a new thing. How do you see this technology altering the landscape further? What kind of opportunities does this make for us? What does this, where is this going to go? Well, creating a community journalist, I think, is powerful because um, I was out there funded by the community, doing the community's work and sharing something that wasn't being shared. And we talk about that all the time. It's like when you're out there, I'd get interviewed and I'd grab the journalist and say, well, come with me. And I'd take him out on Highway 6 and we'd get into them, run right into the mercenaries because I wanted them to see what we see. Then I realized I was the only one out there. And it was um, times I seen infiltrators. I seen people trying to act like water protectors. I think that was... Um, Different to see Morton County always with the mercenaries. And to catch that on Facebook Live validated it. It was not like, okay, I'm making this up. I would go there physically and show it. Like, you have to show the truth because if you don't, then no one's going to believe you. And we couldn't storytell anymore. We had to go there and actually physically see this is what is happening. And I needed to know also, I, I was familiar with Standing Rock. But I needed to know where the pipeline was at, and I needed to know how far I can go and where I can go and scout the area so I understood where to go when I needed to. And I've seen a lot of violations happening as well. College, I was an environmental research assistant, which for that time was I thought was the worst intern position because it was never ending. But it came in handy being a labor of love for all you students, you know that don't feel that it's going to come back and help you. It does come back and help you when you understand the violations that go with environmental justice and all those things that are... If you go to any of the reservations, they're going to have environmental departments. You can get it there and get your information there and see what's happening. But there we couldn't find it. And I spoke with farmers out there, too, and they didn't want to be live-streamed. Um, they were bullied. They were intimidated. And they just said, be careful, because it's not just the mercenaries you've got to worry about. It's also the police. And I ran into customized police vehicles back there, too, you know, where they had the lights all the way across the top. And they would box you in and blind you. And they start calling me, Mr. Dewey, good to see you. You know, I learned a lot about what they can do and can't do. I now know what a smog line is. I'm still trying to figure it out. I think it is two lines together. You know, but they pulled me over many times. And to document them doing this harassment, continued harassment, put pressure on them to leave me alone. And they continued to leave me alone the more pressure I put on them. But as long as I did it in the scope of the law as best I possibly could and break all the rules, not the law, then there was nothing they could do to me. And um, I'm very fortunate that the power of prayer in that camp was so strong it took care of me and many other people that came out there. And the goal was to not just indigenize media, but to educate people. Here's the right way to do because this was warfare we were seeing out there. Not only that, the helicopter followed me many times. The, the plane always followed me. And then later on, it was the drones that they had. So they had their own drones as well. 
and the document that we were being, in the beginning, we we're being used as a testing ground. And that testing ground expanded and it continued to expand and it continued to document them. And live feeding is not the answer, but it's part of the solution. And I don't live feed as much now, but then I had to do it in the protection of my life because of the people I ran into out there. And it wasn't trying to be tough or anything like that. It had nothing to do with that. It really was to expose of what we go through in Indian country all the time. And there's 565 tribes out there that have the same environmental issues in their homelands. And they thought no one was watching in the middle of North Dakota. And by crowdsourcing solutions, that is the trick. That is the answer. It's to crowdsource like-minded thinkers like you guys to share what I didn't know. And I checked as many of those answers as I could. And if I put a call out as immediately, I was like, yes, I got an answer back. Or I shared your message. Or we called the governor's office. <coughs> or from the live feed. Or where are you at? And then people started to know where I was at and started to make sure, you know, we learned about solutions and GPSing. I got solutions from them on what to document and how to be careful, what to ask the officers. Um, I learned North Dakota law very well. <laughs> uh when I went to, uh, I've been a filmmaker and a journalist for a while, and when I went out to North Dakota, I thought, these guys are, the, the, the authorities were very aggressive. They're very aggressive towards the press, very aggressive towards Native people who live there. And much of the time I was first there, I thought, their behavior, they're, they're, they're pushing the envelope. They're outliers. This is not normal. And the, the number of people, of journalists who were arrested was, was high. I mean, a lot of people got arrested. You got arrested. Amy Goodman got arrested. Lots of dozens, I think, of journalists were arrested doing their job in a way where previously that would not, they would not have been threatened with this. It wouldn't have happened. Um, so I think that from the... John, I'd like to... You were sort of dealing with a lot of this and dealing with outside people coming in and talking to the camp. How, what's your opinion of, of, of the condition of the First Amendment as a result of like, what happened to the First Amendment at Standing Rock? And what is the, in your opinion, what's the, the future of First Amendment? Is it, how viable is the First Amendment anymore after Standing Rock? I think... One of the things that Standing Rock exposed was for those who don't live on a reservation or around a reservation, the racism that still exists is rather distinct. Um, the difference between Native peoples and mainstream peoples in North Dakota has there's been a schism, chasm between the cultures for a very long time. We've always been open to welcome people to our circle. And if they come and ask to learn, then, then we're obligated to teach. Uh, many people in North Dakota, as long as, as long as us Indians just stayed down there on the res and stayed quiet and you know, weren't any trouble, Nothing happened. There was no healing. 
North Dakota was one of the last places George Custer went through. And after he was killed, there was a lot of people that were upset about that. It seemed that Standing Rock brought out these racial divides up to the surface and exposed them for what they were. Uh, the treatment that we got from the police, his press, I don't know if it's directly related to that, but overall, I think the aggression from, from the mainstream society against us was partly because they didn't really understand what we were doing. They didn't fully comprehend why we were there. They continually tried to paint us uh, with much more colorful or violent words uh, than I thought was ever required. I'm worried about the First Amendment, especially given the current administration that we're dealing with. I think it's an inherent thing that is healthy for a culture to allow people to tell the stories in a truthful way and not have those stories tainted or colored uh, with any particular biases. The, the fight to maintain our rights is going to continue and maybe intensify uh, in reaction to some of this, some of the targeting that happened in Standing Rock. Um, I had, at one point, I think we had 15, 20 people on the, the Ocheti media team. And we all kind of rotated to get to the front line sometimes. But I was constantly worried about uh, everybody on the team uh, when they would go out. I was a bit of a mother hen to <laughs> make sure that they stayed safe and that they came back. Um, when some of them got arrested, I was on the phone looking for attorneys every, every corner and every rock I could turn over. Um, We have to keep fighting to keep our voice. And I'm, I'm concerned about the First Amendment maintaining or providing us that cover. We had a group come out in this summer to train the media team. Uh, I, don't, I think they were connected with like Amnesty International or something, a large organization. Anyway, attorney, uh, an attorney gave us a presentation and she said as, basically, if you're standing up on the front line and a police officer gives you an order to move, you have two choices. <laughs> One is to move, the other is to get arrested and lose your gear. That's it. The cops, the law enforcement officials that we were facing off with really didn't care about the First Amendment. When we talked to them, and I got to know a couple of them, standing up there in the snow on the road. Uh, they didn't care. They, they saw their job as, as they were justified in what they were doing. Of course, we all have to reconcile our internal you know, motivations and intentions. Um, 
they were given their orders, they felt they were justified. As a long-term First Amendment guy, I owned a newspaper for 10 years. Um, I found a lot of that very disturbing and upsetting. So we have to keep fighting. Paula, your role on the, uh, on the media team uh, was unusual. Most media teams don't have someone uh, that had your portfolio, as it were. Uh, I, I don't know how else to ask this other than for you to explain it, because I'm not going to even attempt at describing it. <clears throat> there, was a, there was a lot of dimensions to, to being at Standing Rock, and, and for a... Uh, uh, an atheist to go there to be in a camp, a political action camp that was prayerful, you know, it made someone like me nervous. I mean, it's like, uh, this, is, this, is, this is not something I was accustomed to. Uh, but you, uh, being there turned a lot of my expectations on their head. Um, so uh, why don't you tell people what you did and, and how you approached your task? Um, at the... I don't know. There we go. Is, is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> um, with the KXL camp, you know, um, everything I do, all the steps I take and everything, I kind of really rely on my, on our culture and traditions and everything. And I try not to outstep any of my boundaries. And I try to really maintain that level so that I can help as much as possible. And... Um, in one of the teachings that I got from my grandmother was that you can't teach anybody unless you've gone through it yourself. And with the first KXL camp, um, the corridor of that pipeline was going through my home community, just like Cannonball. You know, I could stand in the middle of our camp and I could see the cemetery where my relatives were buried. And so I know what that feels like to have a pipeline coming in in reach of your own community and, and threatening the water and threatening the people in your community, threatening the children, you know, the people that don't care about you, the racist people, because I lived in an off-reservation town too. And I understand that racism, that institutional embedded racism in your community, but to also know they're drinking the same water as your grandchildren will be drinking. And so I totally understood everything that was going through the people in Cannonball's minds. I knew what, the, what they were facing. I knew the, what their worries and concerns were. And that's one of the reasons why I felt comfortable about going there. And there was a lot of things that were happening with like our, our Facebook and how we were trying to get messages out, how we were trying to, um, to reach different people. And through our KXL page, we, it was kind of like, you know, testing the waters with that. And when Sacred Stone page came out and when other pages started to blossom from, from Osheti, because after Sacred Stone became too big and Osheti emerged, there were so many different people. And there were a lot of things that we needed to, to consider as indigenous people 
and with all the communities that were coming, all the different nations that were coming, there was, there, every nation has a protocol. Every nation has a way of doing things. Every nation has a distinct personality. And we have to respect that. And as we're moving forward together, there were a lot of things that, you know, I have the fortune, I've met a lot of different people over the past 30 years um, that were diff from different religions and different races and different cultures. And so I knew there were some things that we can and cannot do as we were walking. And there were some things that were inappropriate for us to talk about. And so I was kind of more or less the, like a cultural advisor on how we were going to go forward and, and try to reach the people that we were trying to reach while basically maintaining and holding our cultural values and our traditions as a collective of tribes, not just the Lakota tribes, but as guests, we had certain obligations to the people that were coming into the camp. But we also wanted the media to know, you know, one of the most important things that we did express was, you know, thank you for coming. Thank you for coming to help. We appreciate that. But please remember, my grandchildren aren't bullets on your resume. We came here to do this together. You know, do not expect that you're going to use my people to catapult yourself to fame. Because this is a spiritual movement. This is a spiritual thing that we're doing together. And we're doing this for Mother Earth. And our ancestors were there watching us and helping us. So we had to walk in a certain way. And um, a lot of people were shocked at some of how blunt I stated some things that had to do with that, but it had to be done in that way to teach them. And, and John witnessed shocked faces a lot when I told people to stop. <laughs> yeah. And so um, I, I, uh, you know, I also um, talked with some of the people who were developing the different web pages that were outreaching to people on how to network and connect with the different organizations across the country to ensure that the right people that we wanted to get our message to got to them. So because there are some pretty unique and obscure um, organizations that are out there, native organizations, native groups that nobody really knows about unless you actually know the people in them. So it was really important to reach them, certain individuals, and that's kind of where my role came in. And I, I, I did take a lot of pictures when I was there, and everybody asked me, what kind of camera do you use? And I said, oh, it's right here. Here's my camera. And, and so I did start to um, take more pictures and learned a lot about photography while I was there from the people that did come. And, and it was a, kind of like a step-by-step -step thing. You know, when something would come up, I was kind of like the problem solver. 
so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Chime um, in, please. Yeah. I'm not sure, but I wanted to make sure everybody understood. Uh, Paula Antoine was our spiritual and cultural rock in Standing Rock and constantly reminded us every day was a prayer. And it even got to the point where she would make sure that some of our posts on our Facebook page every day reminded our followers, today is our prayer. And these are the things that we should think about. Um, until Paula joined the media team, we were pretty scattered. Uh, and she really brought a lot of things into focus and kept our feet in the dirt and in the clay. <laughs> and anytime any of us felt conceited or too successful in some way, <laughs> Paula was right there to help us remain humble. <laughs> so thank you, Paula, <laughs> for all that you brought to the team. You can see why I did not want to describe or give her job description on my own. This is... Uh, there was a lot of complexities with, with covering this as a filmmaker. Uh, uh, there's the media blockade, technically, that we had to deal with. There's the, you know, the, the weather conditions. There's camping, the dust, the police, the frontline activity. But then there was also the protocol of camp, which I think has gone a ways towards shaping the, the films that are coming out of Standing Rock. And it's not, it was not the usual deal for journalists where you go in and a guy with a camera on his shoulder, or, or a woman with a camera on his shoulder, has a certain swagger. It's something about picking up the, the implement that just seems to confer swagger. <laughs> don't ask me why. I don't like it, but I see it. <clears throat> that did not help you at Standing Rock. <laughs> that was a definite buzzkill. <laughs> Uh, Myron, you, you, this is not, was not your first rodeo. How did all this stuff affect your filmmaking? Did, did it? Well, the, the first, the first uh, few months was checking in thousands of media and, and uh, teaching them digital protocol. What is digital protocol? Same thing it did with the storytelling with our youth and um, historical trauma training and digital storytelling, digital language preservation. There's those protocols of when and what not to film. And it just kind of translated them over to every single non-native that came through. And there was a handful that came to save us and then to remind them that we've been here. Where were you the last hundred years? And, you know, these are the things that we're going to have to teach you and, and share. And then there was ones that um, there was a lot of personalities that I seen. Um, a lot of people who pretended to be. That's the infiltrator part, too. You know, you learn about who's pretending to be media because there's a certain look media has, certain equipment. And there was one guy that just didn't fit. So, hey, can we take a selfie with you? You know, take a selfie with them. Check them out real fast, you know. And, <laughs> and you know, and in the beginning, everyone thinks that um, Morton County had the sophisticated technology, but it was really the Facebook. They used our pictures and so creating that with the media that was coming through and sharing with them, trying to find out who they were and uh, 
what they were with. It was, it was very suspicious a lot of times. And I got really suspicious because when I started seeing some of the mercenaries and coming to the prairie nights or around, that's when I started getting to the high alert of who is the real media? Who did I see there? And um, the types of cameras they had. And that was the biggest one. It was like, well, you see a guy with, uh, with tape. There's something wrong with that because we're all digital, you know? And it's, and, but the, the media was so important as to help them articulate the narrative that it was an indigenous movement. This was not a civil rights movement. It was an inherent rights movement. Now, our indigenous people need to have the story shared. If you're going to share this story, to share this the right way, correct way. So when Bismarck takes that media, because I've seen media, too, at the, the casino where they never came to camp. They wrote our, our media and wrote articles off of our media. And I said, well, why don't you come out to camp? Well, I've got to only hear one day, you know, or tell me your story, you know. It was like, really, they needed it right there. And it was uh, a learning curve. But I paid, I paid close attention and made sure that I spent time with every single one and share them that story, that this is why it was important to when and when not to film and to respect that. And also to apologize ahead of time that you're not going to get the courtesy that I'm giving you on the next person because our level of healing is different. And the level that they grew up in racism or abuse or maybe non-native foster care, which a lot of our native kids go through, it's different. Their experience is different. Their story is going to be different, but be compassionate to that and just listen. And don't be pushy and forceful. And I also asked our allies that came through to help mediate media. If you see somebody there that was not supposed to film, give them that authority to go, hey, please, can you not film? And, that, and tell them why. So carrying that teaching, that they were sharing our teaching, and a lot of people did it, and sometimes overdid it, you know. And uh, yeah, that was, that, was, uh, that was interesting to share that and share those protocols with uh, media that came through and some of the media, corporate media that came through uh, that felt they were entitled to film anytime they wanted and to humble them up and say, you know, well, just send these guys over to security to take your camera. And I think that happened several times. And then uh, we, the yellow journalism, which one of the Irish guys, I don't know if you guys remember that guy who locked himself in the car and called 911 and <laughs> pushing his camera around. Oh, God, they're coming in. You know, <laughs> it's like, it's, uh, it's funny, you know, to see that and to say, wow, man, these guys are crazy. This is, they hired this guy to come in. And, and this, is, this is a scenario that we went through and always getting a call. So I always had to go check out who was coming through with a camera, sometimes on the road, 1806, and, and kind of uh, fact check, I'll do a lot of fact checking. I think one of the most interesting ones is getting a call from photographers that were taking pictures outside of Oshetti at the children, at our, at our school that was there. And the security came over and, and asked me to go over there and check them out, and I did. I went and checked them out, and they took off, and they went up to the north camp, and they were in a um, SUV that was tinted windows, and I pulled in front of them, and I told everyone to come take pictures of them. It just happened not one person had a good camera. You know, so uh, we got our cameras out, and we took pictures of them, and we ended up getting in a high-speed chase down to the, near, the National Guard barricade. 
And I, was, I called 911 and said I was in pursuit of predators taking pictures of our children because that's what predators do if they're taking pictures of children and they're on the run like that. As we got close to the National Barricade, the National Guard Barricade, that vehicle slowed down to 65 miles an hour. Other vehicles had pulled in and around me and pulled me over. And that vehicle happened to be an undercover vehicle, which was Morton County Police Department. And as they pulled out, um, the officer tried to come get my license and registration. And he was on Facebook Live. And they were just starting to get the gist of what that meant at that time. And then I let the 911 call know that I was with Morton County Police Department. And she told me several times, that's not our jurisdiction, you know, as we took off. And so these are the times we pay attention to whose jurisdiction was that, you know. They happened to be um, high-fiving in the background that whatever it was they felt they were doing, that they had some type of accomplishment. And to document that was, was very interesting, but also to know your rights as, a, as you're filming as a journalist and when and when not to film even off the reservation or in the county land and area that I shared with everybody is you got to know when and when not to film, Put your, make sure your camera's on all the time because it saved your life. And they let me go. I says, I'm in pursuit of predators. And he goes, Myron, they're undercover. They were on a mission and they were scouting. And I says, what do you mean scouting? I got to see if they're officers. So he says, look, and I looked around and that's when I seen them. You know, you push the envelope too and ask them. It's important to ask questions. It's like, these are, the, these are rightful questions. You know, I was concerned that this is what they were doing. And I asked honest questions. They were predators to me. This is what we see as predatory activity. And nothing happened to them. They had no accountability. North Dakota isn't holding them accountable for all the violations that they, we documented. We documented with the, um, the civil rights violations and all the things that they did when they weren't properly trained in what they were doing. And uh, we're going to continue to do that and share with the world that this is not okay. And we're going to continue to show video. And we got more, more people are going to show their documentaries that were there sharing that as well. Um, <clears throat> one, of, one of the many challenges that we had to deal with, with integrating or trying to dovetail modern technology, uh, mainstream expectations, and our traditional cultures. Uh, there were challenges on both sides. As, as press came into camp, uh, they, went, they signed some forms up in the press tent. They went through a brief orientation where they were told the basic rules about filming in camp. And there were you know, things like don't shoot you know, footage of children without the permission of the parents. But the one thing that always came up that was a struggle was don't film the ceremonies. And the, the, the press, uh, mainstream press or, or non-native press that came into camp really struggled to understand what that was all about. And we talked about it a lot amongst ourselves. Uh, there's a lot of theories. Um, some of it, I think, was born out of the fact, as Joy reminded us earlier, up until 1978, it was illegal in the United States for Native Americans to practice their own religion. Illegal. 
There are still laws on some books that say if more than three native people gather in a place, they could all be arrested for treason against the United States government. They're still on the books. So if you got photographed participating in a ceremony, you could go to jail. <laughs> so the Indians, rather than, in order to maintain our ceremonies and our culture, we went underground. And we not, no longer allowed any, any photography, no documentation of those things. And it kind of morphed into this thing that we now have. No photographing of ceremonies. For me, this is a little bit of a struggle because my culture, Lakota culture, we're storytellers. We spend all winter long sitting in our lodges, entertaining each other and keeping the stories going. These are now the way that we tell our stories. And I hope, I've, I've had many conversations with, with my own people about at some point we're going to have to open up these ceremonies and allow them to be filled because we're losing some of our history. Our, our old people are dying and we didn't capture all of their stories and we didn't take the time to sit and listen uh, in the winter time, which is, we call the time of telling stories. So um, we experienced and tried our best in this cultural clash between the struggle to tell the story, mainstream press coming in, not really understanding that cultural uh, substrate, that cultural basis, and even our own people trying to figure out how do we integrate this stuff into our culture so that we can continue to maintain an understanding of both the history and, uh, and keep that perspective. So it's, it's an ongoing thing. It's, it certainly wasn't solved in Standing Rock, and it's, it's going it's to continue to grow and change over time. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.